Hello, and welcome to Is This Anime? I'm your anime expert, Jack Metcalf. And I'm the guy who doesn't uh, know if he likes anime, uh, who doesn't know anything about the genre. I'm Malcolm McLeod. Uh, so for those of us just joining in, each week I select an anime series for Malcolm to watch and three episodes that best showcase that series' strength. And last week's anime was Mobile Suit Gundam Iron-Blooded Orphans. Malcolm, what was your final assessment of it? I hated it. I just did not like it. I don't think there's many redeeming qualities. It so wasn't I, like I, a... would, I would argue. I would argue we were very mean to this show, but then a couple days later we did have drinks together, you know, all all properly done in the COVID ways. And I did drunkenly tell you parts of the plot that to be fair, and I remember this, you did find fairly intriguing. Yeah, okay, fine. So I let's, did... let's be let's be a bit more more generous to the show because to be fair i did fuck up by picking maybe not the best episodes all right uh well i did like biscuit i mean i'll give biscuit, biscuit uh your love saving of... grace <laughs> you're, you're... uh yeah i'm a biscuit boy now i think that's what they call the fans yeah. of his uh biscuit boys and uh i could i think like i'm so torn with it because i really it kind of is a bunch of the reasons why i don't really like anime and why I don't watch it normally. Um, but I think there are like the least like the kind of the world, there's something interesting about the world, but they've never, it just didn't like maximize its potential. For sure. But you know, I did like spoil some of the twists for you. And I do remember you're being like, Oh, that's kind of, that's kind of neat. And without, you know, going too much into that, um, you know, yeah. it, it does get a bit more subversive than what those initial episodes seem like. Yeah, perhaps if I kept going with it, I might mm -hmm. be intrigued by it. But based on what I saw, it was, uh, yeah, very ho-hum. For sure. I, I just wanted to, to give it a, a that series a, a low-key redemption. Uh, I felt a little bad. Because a lot of people do like that show. A lot of people do. Um, but anyways. Well, a lot of people like uh, High School Musical, right? So like I mean, that, that show, though, that launched a lot of careers, or, or at least Zac Efron. I don't know. I don't know how the rest of them are doing. Uh, but anyways, but this uh, this thing we're uh, this anime we're doing is not actually a series. It's a uh, we're actually doing a movie, and it's a Studio Ghibli movie. And Malcolm, do you know anything about Studio Ghibli? Uh, I mean, this is where I knew more about uh, things than before. I just knew they uh, made really good films. Like I never saw any of them. Uh, they just, uh, for whatever reason, I just missed them all. But I just knew that they had a really great reputation for like making high caliber animated films, and um, that uh, that they were basically the Pixar of Japan. Mm -hmm, for sure. And we're going to cover the Studio Ghibli classic, The Wind Rises, today. For those of you who don't know, this is based on the true story of Jiro Horikoshi, who designed the Mitsubishi Zero a fighter plane used by the Empire of Japan in World War II. Now, while this may be the first Ghibli movie we cover, it certainly won't be the last, and I do feel it's necessary to cover the history of this famed studio. And to understand the history of Ghibli, we need to talk about its founder, Heio Miyazaki. Uh, do you know anything about Miyazaki, or, or is your uh, knowledge of Miyazaki tied entirely to Ghibli? I think it's uh, tied entirely into Ghibli. I've heard he might have uh, dabbled into uh, manga, manga. Yeah, he's he's written a couple manga. Um, but I also I've I've always heard that he's uh, just an just a perfectionist. That he's like the most stringent perfectionist that there could possibly be. 
uh, the he, world of animation. He definitely is, because even though we did uh, watch this movie, I also watched the documentary, The Kingdoms of Dreams and Madness, which is a documentary about the making of this very film. And um, yeah, so I'll provide some insights I got from watching that documentary, which is very good. It's Honestly, we could spend an entire episode just covering uh, the documentary itself, because it is a really cool look into just like how how an animated movie in Japan gets made. Um, but anyways, Miyazaki was born in Tokyo in 1941. His father, Katsuji, was the founder of Miyazaki Airplane, which uh, manufactured rudders for fighter planes during World War II. And in 1944, Miyazaki's family had to evacuate multiple homes as the Allies began bombing Japan, which left, left a very deep impression on him, as one would when they're, you know, surviving a world war. Um, during high school, he did aspire to be a manga artist, but he struggled to draw people, instead focusing on planes, tanks, and battleships for many years. And uh, one of Miyazaki's early heroes was Osamu Tezuka, who was the creator of Astro Boy. Uh, Malcolm, do you know anything about Astro Boy? Do you have any familiarity with that one? I know that they made a Astro Boy film a few years ago, they like did, North America. Um, I never saw it. I, I never but... saw it either. But I did hear about it. Uh, I don't know if it's any good or not. But that's like all I know is that at some point they tried to do a North American version of Astro Boy, and I don't think it did very well. Yeah, and I mean, I mean, there's been plenty of adaptations of Astro Boy. It's definitely one of the cultural touchstones of uh, Japanese animation for sure. And uh, Miyazaki, though, he felt he copied Tezuka's work a little too much, and um, much much to the dismay of any historians, he ended up destroying most of the early art he created because of that. And uh, this is an early sign of Miyazaki's rather famous perfectionism. Um, his career, his animation career, though, fully started in 1963, where he worked at Toei Animation. Uh, Toei produces a ton of stuff, most notably One Piece and Dragon Ball Z. And now for the sake of brevity, we're, we're going to fast forward a bit. But one notable film he did work on at, to at Toei was The Great Adventure of Horus, Prince of the Sun, which was directed by Isao Takahara who's going to pop up quite a bit today. His, his uh, relationship with Takahara is uh, low-key depicted in The Wind Rises. And his directorial debut came in 1979 with the film The Castle of Cagliostro, which was part of the franchise Lupin III, which, which is another, you know, we could almost do a bunch of footnotes with these. There's so, many, there's so many key things that pop up just in Miyazaki's brief history we're going over. Because uh, Lupin III is definitely... Uh, worthy of a couple episodes. And so his follow-up to Luke, to Castle of Cagliostro was Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind, which started off as a movie, but then he also wrote a manga. And then the movie ended up only covering the first two of six volumes of the manga. So he was still drawing that manga as he was doing other films later on. So the, that film, which was definitely a candidate to cover today, um, has a bit of an ending where it just ends because the story was literally only a third of the way done. Um, but I kind of respect that. I kind yeah. of, uh, I kind of respect the uh, just going like, Hey, this is where it ends. But if you want to see more, go and, read the manga. And, and the funny thing is he doesn't even like do a game of Thrones thing where he like creates a new ending to like, just sum up the movie. Like I, I read, I read the manga. Like I have the, the six volume collection and no, like the ending is literally just the ending of volume two. There is no, there is no attempt at making more of a conclusion. It just ends. But uh, it's the film is far more well known than the uh, than the manga, so people clearly enjoyed it. 
And Nausicaa's success is what led to the creation of Studio Ghibli, which was founded by him, Takahata, and Toshio Suzuki. And Ghibli's first official film was Castle in the Sky in 1986. Um, we're inevitably going to cover a lot of these films anyways, so I'll spare you the nitty-gritty on them. Although it is notable to say that Miyazaki's 2001 film, Spirited Away, would end up becoming the first and only feature-length anime film to win the Academy Award for Best Animated Picture. Although he did not actually show up during the ceremony because, in his words, I didn't want to visit a country that was bombing Iraq. Uh, the ceremony took place in 2003. So he was, he, Miyazaki is very anti-war, as, as we'll get into with this movie. But yeah, he, he did not show up to his own Oscar win that year. I respect that. I think, you know, he's got a man of uh, clear moral principles and uh, you can't fault him for that. Yeah. Oh man. There's a, there's actually a pretty, pretty great quote. Let me just search it up. Yeah. This, this is him on uh, why he didn't attend the Academy Awards. This is his words. And he said, the reason I wasn't here for the Academy Award was because I didn't want to visit a country that was bombing Iraq. At the time, my producer shut me up and did not allow me to say that, but I don't see him around today. By the way, my producer also shared in that feeling. I, I just love the way the guy speaks. He is so stern, and he again, he gives zero fucks. No, I think once you get to a level of success that he has, where he's so well respected, you know, it comes to a point where it's like, yeah, you can just be honest. Like you're not, you're not having to suck up to anyone. Mm-hmm. People are tending to suck up to you. And so, yeah, that brings us to The Wind Rises, which was released in 2013, and it was intended to be Miyazaki's final film. Although in typical Miyazaki fashion, he has since changed his mind. Nevertheless, this film, as of its release, was intended to be his final statement. And as we'll discuss, the anti-war themes are on full display here. Yeah, that, so let, let's get this out of the way. This film is perfect. I, I will take no, uh, no objections. Yeah, I was going to say, this is art. Like, this, like, we've been watching entertainment. Like, the other yeah, stuff we've been watching. Are, I would say I would that's the genre we've been watching. Boy boys shows you know yeah i was gonna say like that you know we're watching yeah entertainment like you know movies if you will or tv show whatever you want to say like where this is this is cinema this is film like if we were uh doing a youtube like style tier list this is an s tier this is at the top Mm -hmm. this is not an a this is like at the top um I yeah, I was blown away by how much I actually loved it. And I I have to ask this question, uh, which is the name of our podcast. Is this anime? Like this feels like it's something like I mean, further to that. I mean, an- anime is animation. That's what anime really is. And you know, again, to, to honestly, a bit of my own fault. And and we can reference the Gundam episode where I was clearly apologetic for maybe picking a show that was just another boys show. But yeah, like there are. This is really us branching out. It's going to reflect further in my set list for the next episode to come, certainly. Um, but yeah, no, this is this is definitely as far as we can get. I think the, those first couple of episodes we were doing were very much just like, they were all within the shonen genre, but they were still definitely shonen, you know what I mean? There were different shades of shonen, but they were all definitely within that one category. And this is, again, just straight up cinema. Yeah, like this was a pretty breathtaking experience, like especially because I hadn't seen any of his works before. Like this is uh, being a first introduction. Like I know there's now another film he's making um, that's going to come out. Who knows? Probably in the next like three years. Yeah, three years is actually pretty accurate. I just looked it up. Um, as of he made a quote in May 2020, and he said he was was uh, three years away from finishing it. 
So uh, when, he oh, did, the- when he did The Wind Rises, he was 72 when that came out. So he'll be, you know, 82 when that film releases. Yeah, it seems like this – He, I mean, he seems like a guy who will probably keep working till the day he dies. Like, it just, like – that kind of feels – very much like him. I've, I did a little reading after I watched the film of him. Um, not too much, but mm-hmm. just enough to like gather that, you know, because I was, I was curious because I, because after uh, watching this, I did like read that, like this was supposed to be his final film. And it, de- um, it definitely feels like a final statement. Oh yeah. Like you can definitely like, if he had like somehow passed away or something had happened after this film was released, you could be like, he ended on a high note. Like, this mm-hmm. is um, definitely a high note. I will say this, and this is something I looked up as well. So this was nominated for an Academy Award in 2013. And it, which guess, is, guess what it, it lost to? It lost to Frozen. I know. Did, okay, so you had the same reaction to me where you're like, fuck off. What a bullshit win, all right? Like, I get it. Like, uh, Frozen was all the rage. That was a Disney buying a win. Like that, yeah. anyone, like, that or people just didn't bother to watch the animated films uh, I mean, okay. base again. It's it's the fucking thing where it's just you know, it made, Frozen made a ton of money. I'm sure a lot of voters who are older, their kids were watching Frozen, and you know, cultural osmosis. And I'm sure plenty of voters who just straight up did not watch all the movies on that list were like, yeah, it's Disney. It's you know, it made a lot of money. Yeah, Frozen. Um, yeah, that's it's a bullshit. It's a complete bullshit win of of any bullshit wins. Yeah, like I think when you you think you see it, you go like. Like, this is what I feel like, yeah, animation could be. Like, it's like, oh, yeah, this is like, it's, this is such an interesting mix of like being a fictional story, but also kind of a biopic. Also, like, a very good, like, anti war film, mm-hmm. um, where also skirting around like the issues of, you know, being set in, you know, imperial Japan. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know. and, and it's about like so many things. I mean, um, I mean, the probably the biggest core idea is what is it? Is it worth? Is it worth creating art even if it you know destroys? Yeah. Whereas Frozen is about uh, an ice princess. I mean, and, there's uh, a little more to it. I'll give uh, a more credit. It's a nice and movie. a talk and a talking snowman named Olaf, as voiced by Josh Gad. I like Josh Gad, man. I like Josh. Gad. I liked. I like Josh Gad too. I like. I don't. I like Olaf. All right. I let it go was a great song. All right, but it's not like let it let Frozen win the best song that year. All right, because that was probably the best song. Unless so you- I like go back and look at it, but like it did not need to win best animated film against this. I mean, this is such a classic. Like when like Shakespeare in love wins or like uh, the yeah. King's speech and you're like, what is happening? Like it yeah. feels I'm outraged seven years later yeah. <laughs> now that I understand what injustice occurred in 2013. And I'm glad you are. I mean, this was like picking a Ghibli film. It was funny. Cause you texted me earlier. Like, did I watch the right one? And you said, Oh, it wasn't supposed to be Kiki's delivery service. So you mentioned that. I'm like, Oh, actually, well, Kiki, I was considering Kiki. I was going to consider Kiki until this had just come out on Netflix as of uh, this recording. Um, so that was the thing, you know, they, they put all the Ghibli movies up on Netflix, even the non, the ones that are kind of gray area, like Nausicaa and uh, Castle Cagliostro. But um, yeah, like, it's just like, there's like a good five or so Ghibli movies that you can honestly like pick of just like what, how to, how to start this off. I knew for episode five, we were going to do a Ghibli movie and definitely picking which one is like 
you know, it's a tall order, man. There's a lot of good ones. Oh, I can't hear you. What? Hello? I, oh, I couldn't hear you for that last second. Okay, I'll just repeat it. Yeah, I just said it's a, it's a tall order. There's a lot of good ones. I I just uh, I yeah I can I can kind of see it now. I mean, again, having sort of understood a little bit about uh, Miyazaki's like reputation, now it's yeah, it's kind of like who, which one do you pick if they're all like masterpieces? It's it feels like very much of like you know which if you're you know if you're trying to get someone into like tarantino it's like which tarantino film do you pick yeah they all have like really great qualities to each each of them except for maybe once upon a time in hollywood or i love once upon uh, a time in hollywood i liked it a lot more when i saw it a second time but you maybe just... a second one i'm trying to think uh what was his uh what i hated the most was the hateful eight that movie i just watched and i let fuck that movie yeah i mean t- hateful eight i mean now we're getting into just <laughs> tarantino yeah, no but um I'm trying to think of the oh oh sorry it's um, death proof death proof would be like I mean the one I think that movie's like. short though hatefully is three fucking hours that's true it's a basically so a that, that, that's play. where that's where I know people say death proof is the worst one but um, no I, I'd argue hatefully is a garbage just not watchable uh, or not worthy of watching more than just for completionists but anyways back to this good movie which is <laughs> it is a good movie completely it's flawless. Um, and yeah, like I, I watch this most of the time. I, I just watch these series in my preferred language. I like dubs, you know. I'm an aspiring voice actor, so that's just kind of how I like to do it. I like to listen to the, you know, voice yeah. of both people I'm going for. But this, I did uh, watch it both dubbed and subbed. And part of that is because when I watch the documentary, uh, The Kingdom of Dreams and Madness, he does. They do spend a lot of time on the casting process of the main character, uh, Jiro, and. Uh, this voice cast is stacked. Um, it really is. I, I Listen, I'm not super familiar with, like, all these Japanese actors, but certainly the English language cast is actually, like, like Joseph Gordon-Levitt plays Jiro. Emily Blunt plays uh, Naoko. Uh, John Krasinski plays uh, Jiro's friend. Martin Short's in there. Werner Herzog. Like, it's like, I mean, Stanley Tucci, man. Mandy Patinkin. It's just stacked, man. Yeah, like even Ronan Farrow. Ronan Farrow has, has a weird cameo. That's the weirdest cameo I've ever like encountered. Uh, uh. Elijah Wood, I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to rewatch the dub actually because I didn't look up the actors until after I finished watching the dub. I think those ones are like very like especially well when you get down the cast list, you yeah. start going like, Oh, you kinda missed it. Like I it you know, I didn't put it together that like you know, Ma- Mandy Patankin's in this. Until yeah, later. but uh, we haven't really talked about the movie too much. Let's get down to it. And uh, dear listeners, uh, this is definitely going to be a spoiler cast because, yeah, we're not picking three random episodes. We're talking about the entirety of this movie. So um, go watch the movie. It's perfect. It's perfect. It's a perfect movie. Yeah, I mean, if you're not, if you're listening to this and you aren't watching it, I, yeah, I'm kind of surprised. Uh, I mean, or you can listen to this and hear about us actually rave about something uh, compared to last week's episode. Yeah, well, you and know, it, I, I, and I, I and go check, go into it with sky high expectations that I believe will be met. <laughs> yes. Um, so yeah, this this is a biopic, but and it's funny because they do take some liberties. I, I read about some of the liberties. None of them seemed uh, particularly egregious. Certainly, it's you know all in, all in the name of the story. But yeah, this this is an animated biopic, and you know, and that is an interesting angle. Miyazaki had never done 
any films that were, you know, based on real life historical events for one thing. Most of his films are all somewhat fantastical. Yeah, I mean, that's what I've heard. Like, I mean, again, kind of having seen a little, not I hadn't seen, but like just like having kind of like knowing a little bit about it, I've spirited away because I knew that one in Academy Award. Mm. Um, like, I didn't expect that this was going to be so grounded. I mean, there are some fantastical elements here, which includes these dream, these amazing dream sequences. Mm-hmm. Uh, but outside of these dream sequences, everything else. Oh, and then also the um, the earthquake scene, which, by the way, I'm just going to say, like, I think that might be the best earthquake sequence in uh, film history. It was yeah, so it's, stunning. It's beautifully it was animated. So beautifully animated. Kind of scary. Like, it, it, like just like the the way they used the sound in that to like. Mm. Uh, to bring on this like um impending doom i like when that happened i was like oh no there's gonna be a godzilla that shows up or something <laughs> like that i was like this is i've been set up like this is gonna be a whole thing about like a monster there's gonna be a monster movie on some level but no it was just like just an um just a just a great depiction of a very devastating earthquake at a time when these kinds of earthquakes, yeah, would just drive a state of community. And, and yeah, they still, they still happen in Japan. Japan's still reeling from the effects of that earthquake they had uh, several years ago. Yeah, I mean, and that's the issue with Japan uh, is the fact that it is right in the ring of fire. And it is a, you know, it's a it's an island nation, right? So um, it will get hit harder than, you know, bigger mainland nations just because there isn't as much uh, real estate. Mm. But let's start at the beginning. So the movie begins in 1918 with a young uh, Jiro Horikoshi, and he, yeah, he's he's having a dream. He he wants to fly, and that that's a simple dream. He just loves aircraft so much. Yeah, but he's uh, nearsighted, so mm-hmm. like that uh, that means he can't really fly. It's just he just doesn't have the eyesight for it. Mm-hmm. Um, but he has this dream, yeah, obviously, where he meets Giovanni Battista Caproni, yeah. who's a, a famous Italian, um, I guess, aviation expert, uh, you know, aeronautical yeah. engineer, um, who kind of tells him about that the fact that he never has never flown a plane, even though I, he's built planes. I love the, the Caproni character so much. I love him so much. Just such Stan- a- in the dub, Stanley Tucci is pretty incredible. He, he like, gives a fantastic performance. I, I would say that in the dub, Stanley Tucci and uh, also Martin Short. Like, I find <laughs> Martin, Martin Short... Is fun, yeah. I, I kind of find Martin Short to be annoying on screen. Like, I just feel like he's hamming it up too much, usually. Mm-hmm. But, like, this is sort of, like, a perfect vehicle for Martin Short. And I also think it's a perfect vehicle for Stanley Tucci, who I didn't realize was voicing Caproni until uh, I looked that up uh, afterwards. It definitely helps that he's able to give like an acting performance and, you know, comparing the two, um, Tucci compared to his, um, well, not subbed, his original voice actor. Uh, name, name, name. I need to credit the, the voice actors, especially the Japanese voice actors here because they're great. Yeah, Nomura uh, Mansai. I mean, Nomura is definitely doing a more grounded performance. Uh, he's not—he's not a Japanese man trying to do an Italian accent. But I think they both work in different ways, for sure. Yeah, I would say that because I didn't listen, I uh, didn't watch a non-dub version of this okay. film. Um, I just watched the dub version. I will say um, that 
that yeah, I think Stanley Tucci is definitely playing up the fact that he's a character in a dream. Yeah, and that that's what I love too. He's Ajiro. Uh, what does he ask? He asks him like, "You're in my dream," and he's like, "No, you're in my dream." And I just love that. Like, just like he's such a big character, Caproni. Yeah, and it's like it's interesting because this is also based on a real person. So, and because there hasn't really been like a very famous biopic of Caproni, um, it's I don't really know what he's like. <laughs> I don't know his story, but I just love kind of like the audacity, the fact that he keeps calling him Japanese boy. Keeps yeah, calling him and, that, and, that, and that's also in the subtitles and stuff too. The sub, it's funny, we've talked before about how like subs and uh, dubs aren't completely accurate, but from my memory at least, I didn't see any, I didn't see any um, transparencies. No, I mean, I feel like, again, this is one of those projects where there's so much, like there's such a perfectionist at the top of it. Yeah. And I bet, I feel like he would be, you know, going into the you know to the subtitles and like making sure for sure like they matched <laughs> and, and and to be fair miyazaki and ghibli studio ghibli's luck wasn't always perfect um it's actually actually ironically disney uh were the ones who did all these dubs um not this one i believe who did the dub for this one oh media release oh no hey, walt, walt disney's home studios did uh release this movie as well because I know there's like some new, again, with Ghibli and rights, it's so complicated sometimes. But yeah, a lot of, a couple of early Ghibli movies had different English dubs and then Disney um, got the rights to them and treated them a lot nicer. Okay. Yeah. And yeah. It, that also was like John Lasseter uh, from Pixar, who was a big, you know, he's a big Miyazaki fanboy. So he was a big proponent of, you know, getting these things right, which is why, you know, they have these Hollywood casts that, of course, you know, an, an animation TV shows don't really get. No, of course not. Like you get like very talented um, voice, uh, you know, dubbing actors. But they're not like they're not like stars. And to be fair, I think I think to be fair, Joseph Gordon-Levitt's probably the weakest cast member. I'd argue, in the dub at least. I don't know. How I actually think. was going to disagree with you. Oh, I actually kind of found I I thought John Krasinski was a little bit like. Um, distracting because like he oh, he's, has, yeah, he's doing Krasinski. yeah because he had he because he has a unique voice and he kind of has like a cadence to him i thought that, it like, was that character i kind of like the Krasinski voice as the best friend yeah i mean that it does work uh i guess in some ways but i just found it maybe just a little more distracting when you compare it to the fact that like again martin short's in this warner herzog's in this um You've got, you know, like Mandy Patinkin, and then they all kind of, or even Stanley Tucci, they all sort of seamlessly are in the film, and you don't, That's you true. don't feel like distracted. But even Emily Blunt as well, where you're just like, oh yeah, I guess that was Emily Blunt, mm-hmm. um, John Krasinski, because it was weird when he would be like, when he when he would say Japan, and you're like, oh yeah, this is a Japanese character. Yeah, enough. true enough. Um, but I also don't. I think he was like this massive problem that like oh no like it you know was super distracting it was just i think because everything else was done so well that it's like oh yeah i guess you, you, you kind of were reminded in certain moments that it was krasinski but it's uh i still like that they had him in it and that you know the fact that he also was uh, willing to be you know kiro uh hanjo rather than just like i'm gonna be jiro um hmm. Or... Yeah, I mean, I guess with me, also after watching that documentary, which focused so much on the casting of Jiro, 
that that's kind of also influenced why I didn't think uh, Gordon Levitt was the strongest member of this cast. Um, because yeah, Miyazaki did have very, very specific uh, things for why he, for, for how he wanted Jiro to be portrayed. And uh, the person who played Jiro in the um, original language version was Hideki Anno, who is not an actor. He is actually an animator. He was uh, one of Miyazaki's protégés. He, he most famously created the series Neon Genesis Evangelion. So yeah, he's, he's not an actor at all. And that's exactly what uh, Miyazaki wanted for that role. Oh, really? That's very fascinating. Yeah, I would never have expected that he would be like, okay, we'll just have, you know, one of my protégés do this. But yeah, and I like, also respect it. Like, if you have a voice or if you're creating a character, and you just happen to like, oh, I keep, like, I'm sure, you know, uh, Miyazaki was, you know, constantly thinking about, like, you know, probably had um, Hidaki Anno's voice in the back of his head when he was probably writing it so it probably not, made sense yeah they, they actually even have like a meeting where they're talking about how they um they they film a meeting in the documentary where they're saying we don't know who it should be and then someone just brings up what about ano and then miyazaki he's smoking a cigarette <laughs> that's the great thing about the documentary again japan's japan uh when it comes to smoking they haven't progressed as far as the rest of the world does like it, you can still smoke in quite a few areas i mean yeah you've been to japan i'm like me what was the smoking situation like there oh everyone was smoking like <laughs> it's it's just like it's just part of the culture like it's just like oh yeah you know you smoke they're just very uh very strict about like no no trash left behind so you don't yeah. see like cigarette them smoking in cigarette buds lied like lining the streets it's just like like you know you can go into certain bars and uh yeah people are smoking and it's not this like this taboo like it is here but it was something i did notice i kept being like oh yeah there's a lot of smoking in this film yeah um, and i mean and this documentary is just so great because miyazaki you know he's a person who simultaneously shows very little but also shows a lot in just his mannerisms <laughs> again he's just such a curt perfectionist guy but then he'll just like you know reveal like a little smile or something like that <laughs> Um, but yeah, you know, when they bring up Ano, he just kind of chuckles and he's like, hmm, Ano, and, you know, he just takes a drag of his cigarettes. And, uh, the way he wanted that role portrayed was, um, he talked about even just the way, like, um, Jiro breathes in his movie. He's like, he's so smart that he spares his breath. It's not because he's shy. Like, he, he wanted someone who's just like, again, just answers, answers questions, just, you know, isn't... You know, his Jiro is like portraying this film as like being borderline on the spectrum. You know, that's kind of kind of how it is. Yeah, I mean, they have that scene where they joke like when they uh, when Jiro uh, acknowledges to his bosses that like he has a fiance, and they're like, "Really? Like we didn't even expect that. We thought you would be married to a plane." <laughs> like that's how like dedicated to his work he has been because um, it is like a bit of an obsession. And yeah, I totally get that. Like. There is this, like, yeah, savant quality mm -hmm. to him, basically because of his also obsession with yeah, with aviation. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, let's let's move forward to a bit of the plot. Um, so, yeah, he has this, you know, dream conversation. And again, man, that dream is just so well animated. Like, you know, you just see him flying these planes just over over the course of, like, you know, the fields of um, his town. And man, again, it's... it's this is hard to almost talk about because, again, so much of this film is just visual. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, it's like, I think it's when people make the argument of like, oh, yeah, 3D film, you know, 3D animated films, like you can't get better than that. I'm like, but I think those 3D animated films will lose a bit of its, their quality as like graphics get better. Like we're always Mm. one upping ourselves. Like you think about like, wow, Toy Story was like so ahead of its game when it was released in the nineties. And now when you kind of go back to watch it, you sort of see all of its flaws. Yeah. Whereas something like this, like because it's like hand drawn and like it's you know, but it's so visually appealing, like it's gonna have a timeless element. Like I'm sure in like you oh, know yeah, this film like twenty never... years, you're gonna still have the same feelings you did if you were someone who watched it in like 2013 or for me 2020 like it's just you know it kind of keeps go- adding um i think it's just going to add to its mystique mm-hmm. so yeah the film after after that sequence the film cuts to five years later and that's where we get the the earthquake sequence we were talking about earlier and this is where he meets a young girl who uh who he ends up falling in love with yeah that was a, it was an interesting meet cue like because I was like, okay, she's obviously going to play a role in his life at some point. Like, it's just like, there's like, it's just kind of this perfect, um, they're sort of, they recite um, a French poem to each other, except he's like kind of older now. Like he's, he's obviously university age, like 18, but she's like very much like a young girl. So it was like, okay, like how young, I mean, it's always hard to say in these, right? Yeah. These, these animes, you're like, she could yeah. be like 15 she could be 12. We don't know. But the great thing is, is that we don't have to worry about that because like the, the earthquake happens, he's like the savior. And then he like goes off to school and then he goes, gets his job at uh, Mitsubishi. Um, and so you don't have to, so she gets to grow up a bit and then there is time that passes, but it was like a really nice meet cute. I really love the animation of like, inside the train with everyone like in there like i just don't think if you were to try to film that live action you'd get the same sort of like effect of almost the claustrophobia inside that train or even the speed of sitting kind of outside the like whatever the train cart so so i I will talk about one of the creative liberties probably the biggest one um the character of his wife in the film on naoko uh she she has a fictionalized character that does make sense. I also like looked up briefly uh, zero and I know like they did take a bunch of liberties, which I actually don't mind. Like, I don't think like this had to be this like strict. Yeah. Uh, biopic because you are doing animated. So you can take these creative liberties, which is like, it makes me think of like, you know, again, North America and the fact that they should, um, I feel like North American animation studios should take more risks rather than just like constantly doubling down on like the minions. <laughs> I mean, but unfortunately minion, minions sell, um, sell toys and t-shirts and uh, I don't think anyone's going to have like a Giro t-shirt. And that's the thing, like even like Studio Ghibli films, plenty of Studio Ghibli films are merchandisable. This, this, this film isn't merchandisable at all unless you just like zero planes. I mean, I guess you could sell the planes. Like, if this, like, but all the, because I there's some I, amazing planes in this where you're like, where you're just like, yeah, it'd be kind of cool um, if you were to collect these toys to, like, collect some of the, you know, the planes, especially the planes at the beginning sequence. 
but yeah, it's it again, like no no one's no one's wearing Caproni t-shirts or you know collecting Caproni action figures. Um, yeah, unfortunately, it, I, I maybe maybe you would get one. I think maybe maybe we should find if someone can make you one on Etsy. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, again, like even though this film does take a number of liberties, it doesn't feel as egregious as something like Bohemian Rhapsody, which is a garbage movie. Yeah, I mean that's yeah, that's it is a garbage movie. But that also like Bohemian Rhapsody. Let's be real. That's a the, the editor deserved his Oscar win for that because no one was in charge for like long stretches of production. Yeah, well, uh, but, but but then it makes you feel like oh man, it would be great if they like had done like an animated, um, you know that like made Bohemian Rhapsody animated. Um, yeah, I mean, again, it's the it's the kind of, you know, North American perception that, you know, animation is for children. And, you know, it, it there's, there's no real midpoint. It's either it's for children or it's something like Sausage Party where it's raunchy just because it's like, hey, this shit isn't for kids, you know? There's nothing yeah. like, oh, we're just telling a story that happens to be animated. There's no midpoint. No, I mean, the closest I can think of of, like, something that was uh, animated but also, like, not definitely not for children but it was like partially animated partially real was i don't know if you ever watched the documentary kurt cobain montage of heck oh i didn't know there was animated parts in there yeah so like there's uh large stretches of animation in that film um which is it's really appealing it's really an interesting style of animation um and i I recommend checking it out if you're Mm -hmm. a fan of uh nirvana for sure Anyway, so yeah, we we talked about how how just incredible that earthquake sequence is, and yeah, it's the uh, the meat cute, and then we cut to a bit more where he's graduated with his friend Hanjo, and they they both get employed at Mitsubishi. Yeah, I mean, and it's like you know they they sort of also showing what I really liked about it was like that sequence where they're going to Mitsubishi. Uh, you know, they're going through the city. I believe it's Tokyo they're in. Mm. Um, and you can see everyone's desperation. There's like, there's no jobs, you know, p- banks are closing, you know, uh, and it's like, it's setting up how Japan got involved in uh, World War II, mm-hmm. where like, where people who got so desperate that they were like, of course, I'll just sign up for the military because it like feeds me, it pays me. Where all yeah. these other jobs are uh, are non-existent. Yeah, and again, like th- this film is, you know, really about like the loss of innocence. I mean, it's about so many things, but again, you know, Jiro who just dreams of just making beautiful, beautiful planes, and then of course Japan gets into this terrible conflict that you know, as we f- see in the film, you know, there were plenty of people in Japan who were like, "This is freaking stupid. We should not be doing this." Yeah, and I mean, I obviously, from what I've read of uh, Jiro uh, Horiko, was it Horikoshi? Horikoshi, um, he was, uh, you know, pretty quietly anti-war. Like he was mm-hmm. very much like again, and it's very obviously uh, Miyazaki is also very anti-war, um, and you definitely feel it here too, where it's like I think they refer to the planes as dreams. Uh, and which is such a beautiful way of describing mm-hmm. airplanes because it is really a dream. Like I think yeah. if you'd asked people, you know, 200 years ago, like, like what, what do you think would fill the skies? Like they wouldn't ever imagine like the stuff that we have uh, now in terms mm-hmm. of whether it's like a commercial flight, uh, airplanes to helicopters to like, you know, 
you know, to those hyper, you know, sound barrier breaking like jets. Like it's just, it's unbelievable uh, on some levels. Um, I do wish we had a little bit more creative. Like I would, you know, it's too bad the, um, the Zeppelin disaster occurred. Because <laughs> blimps are always great too. Like who doesn't love a good blimp? Um, <laughs> so, but yeah, it was just great. And then, you know, yeah, as they go along with like working at Mitsubishi, they uh, are, you know, asked to go to uh, to go to Germany. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we get that sequence in uh, Germany, which is pretty interesting. And yeah, he, he witnesses anti-Semitism for one thing. Yeah, that one was, cr that was like, I mean, they were already kind of experienced some racism when they're trying to like look at the planes and like, you know, um, sheer, um Zero has to like explain to the Nazi soldiers, you know, we're we're not stealing anything. We, you know, obviously they have a license to be there, there. But there's a respect amongst engineers. Like this is a marvel, you know. Yet like the Germans are all, are going like the Japan Japanese are just going to steal it. They're always stealing our stuff. Like again, highlighting that like Nazism. Like yeah. we are the best, which is such a trait of the right <laughs> that they do do that. Uh, yeah. That, you know, um, that like you know. Um, that toxic nationalism. And so, um, but then obviously there's again that great uh, sequence. And it's weird to say great because it's like, it's such a, it's horrifying, mm -hmm. but it's also, but it was so well animated with like the shadows and like, you know, the light of, with the secret police, um, you know, tracking down and trying to capture uh, a Jewish person fleeing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and again, it, it's all stuff that's, you know, kind of just seen in, di in the distance, too. Like, again, you know, Jiro is just, you know, walking. What's, you know, he's so, uh, what's the word? Again, you know, he's... Idealistic? He's so idealistic, but again, he's just like, just a side character in this greater narrative of just, you know, history. Like, he's... Yeah, like, he's, again, just an engineer who's, mm -hmm. you know, really just wants to build planes. And unfortunately, yeah, he's coming of age at a time when the planes that are being manufactured are for war and not for, you know, commercial purposes. Or even better would be for, like, artistic purposes. Oh, but, uh, but before that, we actually jumped a bit ahead. That was my fault. Um, I love those sequences early on when... Um, you know, you just see him at work at Mitsubishi at first, where he's just like at his at his desk, just drawing and you know just disappearing into his work, and it, you know, just morphs into this other extended dream sequence, dreamlike fashion. You know, like my God. Oh like, yeah. The visuals would... in this are just again. I mean, it's not suited for a podcast because they're just so bloody beautiful. Yeah, I mean, I, that's a, one thing I think it's like hard to describe with the. Uh, uh, yeah, with the dream sequences, uh, they're nev never distracting. Like, it's never, mm -hmm. like, crap, we're in this dream sequence. Like, I've watched plenty of films that, like, do have these, like, fantasy sequences or whatever where it's, like, you know, someone comes, yeah, obviously in a dream. And it's just sort of, like, it's in, like, a stale environment. It's usually, like, either in all black or, like, it's just something's missing. And in this case, it was, yeah, it became so much more full of life. Like, it was just, like you know, the luxury plane that was, you know, being taught it in the dream um, yeah. of like, it's a passenger plane. And it's like, it's just, yeah. It's and I, as someone who's watched the Ghibli documentary, I mean, the, uh, 
the Studio Ghibli itself uh, resembles also the uh, the workplace that Jiro was working in too. Again, with all the desks and just their drawing, like you know, it's 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 not very subtle about you know the design that influenced uh, the uh, the film. Yeah, and I don't I don't hate that. I mean, it's like oh, part of it's it. like yeah. draw what you know, and like it seemed very like also kind of accurate. Like, yeah, this is what they would be doing. I mean, there's that sequence also in that be- uh, beginning part of when they're working where, you know, he's just kind of going off drawing, doing this new design for uh, the wings to like, mm-hmm. you know, um, with the steel wires. And um, they're like, well, that's not your assignment. And he's like, no, I already finished the assignment. And then the, uh, uh, what is it? Um, I, Kirokawa? Kirokawa? Yeah of his boss oh uh, yeah it's like god damn it's perfect <laughs> like this kid's a genius kirokawa is awesome and again i just like you know he's such a funny little short man um i thought he was voiced by wallace sean i didn't realize uh, martin short uh voiced him he sounded like a wallace sean who does like rex the dinosaur in the pixar movies yeah i mean that's exactly it right where it's like that's why i think it's one of well, probably one of martin short's better performances in recently yeah it's because like it does yeah it does not feel like martin short like it definitely like i think saying wallace sean like that actually makes a lot of sense yeah because he, he looks like a wallace sean character i mean he even kind of looks like uh sean's character in the incredibles the uh the insurance boss um no i again like, man just freaking visuals are just so beautiful and yeah like this film is also like semi I wouldn't call it autobiographical of Miyazaki, but again, he's putting so much of his soul into it and just his own personal connections. Like I said, like, you know, his father, uh, his father worked, had an airplane business or whatever, or, you know, made uh, air, airline parts. And so that's the whole thing. And I mean, again, the guy couldn't even draw people's faces in high school. He was always just drawing planes and tanks and stuff. So again, there's just so much of him in Jiro, and of course, you know he's going to make the uh, the office space there resemble his own workspace. Yeah, that's where like the uh, blending of like Jiro being a like f- you know a fictional character with being a real person, like mm. it's sort of a perfect blending. Yeah, and man, um, again, this is like Miyazaki who just goes from like being stern to just childlike, where he just he just does like really he really loves planes. And he'll just remark about that. He's like, yeah, they are very cool. <laughs> and Yeah, uh, it, this is like such a like, yeah, love letter to like aviation. Like it's like, I've never really seen planes depicted with so much grace mm-hmm. in any like sort of cinema before. Um, like it's just, yeah, like it's, like these are some of the most beautiful, breathtaking, like area, like aviation, um, like shots of like when the plane's flying around or even when there's like a, a sequence where like i think they're uh working on um a plane that uh ends up uh breaking apart because it goes too fast yeah uh, and even that crash sequence is so like it's so well, just the way the parts incredible. break apart too again it's and also you know this movie of course had a significantly higher budget than you know any of the tv shows we've watched so that definitely helps you do see the money yeah, you see the money and you also see the time. Like, yeah. that's the other thing. Like, you know, with money comes time and they're not rushing it. For but sure. I also expect, you know, I have sort of different expectations. Like, when you're watching a TV show, like, I understand, you know, it's shorter amount of time to tell the story of the episode, you know, shorter amount of time to produce it. You're trying to, you know, you're looking at not only the episode, but a season arc. 
what does that mean? Like, it's just a different way of telling a story where this is, you know, for like the parameters of film, mm-hmm. like it's, yeah, it's so great as like an exercise as to what you can do. Oh, and, uh, and did, did, did you feel that whole uh, Peter Griffin moment, you know, where Peter Griffin's like, ah, they said the title of the movie when they, when they do say it during the wind, cute, the, uh, the meat cute, where they're like, the wind rises, we, we must try to live. Yeah, that was very forced. I did notice that. I was like, oh, man. So it, it, it's a poetic it was... line. It comes from a poem, uh, The Graveyard by the Sea. And, you know, I, I accepted it. I liked it. Yeah, it's like I've seen it way worse done. Like I've seen like, you know, I think I feel like when you see like The Fast and the Furious, like they re- that's like something where they're just like hamming it in. Like they're just like, oh you know we're gonna be the fast and the fierce you're like come on like it's just like you might as well just look directly into the camera and said that yeah and winked um so i I don't hate yeah i don't hate it um and it was it just it worked but it was definitely still like oh yeah i get it um also because apparently this is like this the film also got its title from a novel. That's something I kind of also read that there was like yeah. a bit of a novel, but it's not, ha- the novel apparently has nothing to do with. It's written about the life of Jiro Horikoshi. It is written about, uh, about him. So there's that. Oh, I thought it was more about tuberculosis. And, uh, uh, it is, yeah. according to Wikipedia, it is set in a tuberculosis, san- <laughs> tuberculosis sanitarium in Nag- Nagano, Japan. Nagano. Oh, Nagano, Japan. Oh, wait. No, does it have anything to do with them? Hmm. It has something oh, to do with mind, the... Oh, never mind, never mind. You're right. You're right. That's... It has something to do with the second half of the movie, which oh. I was surprised by that turn. Yeah, we'll get to that in a bit. We'll get to that in a bit. But yeah, so anything more from this portion? I don't want to miss like any key details because I love the early, the first act of the film. I really do. It's so beautiful. Um, I mean... I think, I mean, just the character design, like, the fact that they have, like, the young Euro, and then, like, you know, as he gets older, like, just, like, it's so, like, seamless. It's like, oh, yeah, that's clearly the older version of the character. There's so many times where, so far, we've seen, like, younger versions of characters, and then they get older, and they just look like completely different people. You're like, oh, I took, you know, it'd take me a second to realize, like, oh, this is the same character, now just older. This is like, oh, it's a very natural progression of age. That, that's the other thing too just the character designs what i love about ghibli is just how soft everything feels there's no edges there's it's they're not ang- there's no like you know hard angles like you see in other uh anime yeah no this is again a different class like this is the s tier mm-hmm. um there yeah it's just it's a very breathtaking i mean i think the only thing is, is sometimes i kind of wanted to see a little bit more of ko uh your sister oh yeah um because she kind of you know she kind of comes in and out of the story and like Mm -hmm. there's a sequence like at the very beginning Mm -hmm. that like she's mad at her brother because he promised to like do something with her and he's too caught up in his aviation um but then she like makes a comment they end up being on the roof and then they're looking at uh stars and he's trying to like because yeah at that point he wants to be a pilot um so he's trying to like get, make his eyesight better by staring out and like i guess his reasoning is if you stare at the stars long enough it'll strengthen your eyesight which is like such a 1918 thing to say like yeah we know that's definitely not it's also such a childish thing to say like it's such a like oh yeah this is a child at this moment 
Um, but then, you know, it, that bond at least, you know, kind of um, prevails for the rest of the film. Yeah. But yeah, I, I think I would have loved to have seen her a little bit more. Um, but I do, th- you know, she does pop in and out of the film. And it's not like too distracting. Yeah. So, so before we move forward to basically the next act of the film, let's definitely go into that final dream sequence or not fi- final of the act. I mean, that dream sequence he has in Germany with Caproni where, you know, Caproni is, tells him that the world is better for the beauty of planes. And he's like, you know, he's like, would you rather have a world with pyramids or without? Which is a weird comparison because are the pyramids like were they used for war? Did I like? Yeah, I didn't quite get that part. Or is he like talking about how the Egyptian Empire was just you know bad? He doesn't really go into that. Yeah, I'm not sure it's a great Egypt. Yeah, I mean, I under kind of understand like the Egyptian Empire was, from my understanding, you know, was kind of like the big adversary for the um, uh, Roman Empire. Okay. Because like, they they because they're, they're two empires, but they're kind of too a little too far away from each other to really do any damage. But like, obviously, they were uh, connected on some level. Um, but I mean, I guess it's more about beauty. And like, I think there's like a lot of uh, and it's something I was thinking about where there's a lot of con- I feel like um, parallel connections between Caproni and um, Giro, which is like they're both like dreamers they're both like we want to build like amazing aviation um equipment like these planes but they're both you know designing planes for access countries Mm -hmm. right like you know hero's got a design for um japan and uh giovanni is designing for italy Mm -hmm. right and they're both you know that means they're only making kind of war planes on certain level but I did respect the idea of like, you know, you need that beauty of the, you know, of the planes uh, mm-hmm. because at the end of the day, like, you know, almost that's going to be the legacy rather than like the wars. Yeah. Or I mean, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. And uh, th- this is a great Miyazaki quote. It's fairly lengthy, but uh, definitely when he was speaking in the documentary, I just had to, you know, transcribe all of it. And this is what he kind of says regarding that. He's like, You know, people who design airplanes and machines, no matter how much they believe that what they do is good, the winds of time eventually turn them into tools of of industrial civilization. It's never unscathed. They're cursed dreams. Animation, too. Today, all of humanity's dreams are cursed somehow. Beautiful, yet cursed dreams. I'm not even talking about wanting to be rich or famous. Screw that. That's just hopeless. (laughs) I love that bit. Uh, What I mean is, how do we know movies are even worthwhile? If you really think about it, is this not just some grand hobby? Maybe there was a time when you could make films that mattered, but now most of our world is rubbish. Again, man, just, just I just love the way Miyazaki speaks, you know? He's simultaneously like this cranky old man, but again, you you can't fault him. He's just so eloquent. And just, yeah. The, and you can also just tell how sad he is when he says that stuff. Yeah, like, that's being said with a heavy heart. Yeah. And the other thing, too, is this film was made when uh, Japanese, uh, when Japan's current uh, political regime was taking over. And uh, yeah, Shinzo Abe, who actually had just resigned recently um, as prime minister of Japan, he was taking over. And what happened was Japan has moved to a, in the last like seven years or so, Japan has moved far to the right. They, they've pretty much gotten rid of their uh, pacifist uh, beliefs effectively 
which is, you know, Miyazaki, who is like a known pacifist and actually used to be a communist at one point, although he, he, he kind of, he kind of um, went away from that. Like later on, he kind of was like, oh, I wasn't that much of a communist, but you know, again, he's very, he's very far left, very, very pacifist, you know, he, he's pro-environmentalism and all that. And yeah, he was watching what was going on in the, in the Japanese government, and he was very unhappy when he was making this film. Yeah, because, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, it's hard to, I don't know uh, enough about the socioeconomic uh, politics of Japan to really comment, but yeah, I mean, I think you're starting to see, like, that the generation that really felt the effects of uh, the second world war and the subsequent fallout, they're all starting to die off and now yeah, you're getting exactly. a new generation who don't necessarily remember um, or even care to acknowledge what you know history is uh, what happened in history. And you're seeing that also in the United States and you're in Canada, you're seeing it all over the world where, um, you know, if you don't have that direct connection to someone who was there, it's all of a sudden it's very easy to like get riled up of like, why are we pacifists? Like we should be doing more. And it's like, oh no, just you gotta read what was going on. <laughs> and, um because yeah, it's uh I could see that, yeah, that anguish of like seeing your country, you know, ch- kind of change in a very rapid fashion. Okay, so so yeah, the, this is a controversy that actually made me laugh. Uh, yeah, we, we know it received criticism from the political right, but it also got criticism from the Japan Society for Tobacco Control, I guess, for all the smoking in the movie, which I'm just like, come on. <laughs> it's like it's 1920s to 40s for fuck's sake. Yeah, I will say, like, yeah, it, it is noticeable because so many uh, projects, they don't uh, smoke much anymore. Oh, yeah, especially like, yeah, Directly American for adults. Yeah. Um, but uh, in terms of being, like, uh, accurate for the time yeah of course people smoked like i was you know they just everyone just did it i mean people and, and part of it was miyazaki is still alive somehow i'm I'm shocked that lung cancer hasn't oh. claimed the guy but you know like i have to wonder at a certain point if they're like if there's because of like some of the stuff they put in cigarettes i guess maybe that's not just like if that's like exasperating things but I also, like, I don't know, maybe he's rolling his own cigarettes and they're pure tobacco. Like, it's hard to tell. Uh, yeah. Because it, it, it always feels like there's two uh, a kind of two ways around it with smoking. It's like either you go out young or you're the last to die. <laughs> like, it's like there's yeah. no, like, middle ground. Yeah, so he actually also published an essay around this time which criticized uh, Japanese right-wing, and this is going to sound funny to Americans, the Liberal Democratic Party. I just love how political parties, like, you know, America has their own words for what the left and right mean. And then other countries, it's just, it's just all over the place. Like liberal democratic party, you would think would be far left, but nope. Uh, They're a far right party and they were going to change article nine of the Japanese constitution to allow Japan to remilitarize. And yeah, he, Miyazaki is very upfront. He does not believe in that. Yeah. I'm not even sure though, if they did do that, if America would allow that to happen. (laughs) Yeah, be very interesting. I don't, but yeah, I mean, you, you, folks, listen, I want to just read Wikipedia articles for this podcast, so you, you, you can go check that out yourself to see if they did. They did yeah. the constitution yeah. change. And I mean, yeah, soon we'll just have a spinoff called "Is This an Act of War?" and we'll just talk about whether Actually, uh, I, I, I Japan's re, uh, if Japan remilitarizes, well, will that? One thing I do remember though is that the Obama administration actually did support this. 
they, they, they did support Japan's uh, choice to remilitarize. Because again, Japan's, Japan is an ally of the states. It's not, that, that beef ended a long ass time ago. <laughs> um, That's true. Yeah, Miyazaki has said he has very complex feelings about World War II since as a pacifist, he felt militarist Japan had acted out of foolish arrogance, which again, we, we see that multiple times in the movie. A lot of people are criticizing this war and a lot of people in the film are just like, yeah, this, this ain't, gonna, ain't gonna go well for you guys. Yeah. And, and yet the funny thing is, Miyazaki said that the Zero plane represented one of the few things we Japanese could be proud of. Zeros were a truly formidable presence, and so were the pilots who flew them. Again, this guy just has so many contrasts. He just he just thinks planes are awesome. Yeah, and again, you can really it really shows throughout the whole uh, film. Now, so yeah, let's kind of move on into like basically the second act of the movie. We've been focused so much on the first, but again, there's just again that first act alone is just like perfect. Yeah, I mean that's the thing. It's interesting. I usually take a lot of notes when I'm uh, watching these. Um, but for for this one, this is like the first time where my notes are pretty limited because I was just so engrossed with what was happening on screen. Yeah, so he he's promoted to chief designer, but is but uh, his design fails testing and it's rejected. And he, yeah, he goes to a summer resort and he meets uh, Naoko again, and also probably my favorite character of the film. He meets Castor. Yeah, that was such a That's great like. Castor was such. I was like. Um, he's the biscuit of this film where it's just like it's a he's just a great we, we, we need to turn that into the segment who's the speed wagon or biscuit of the, the yeah who's the uh, Robert E.O. speed wagon of this and it's uh, Castor I mean Werner like that's again from the dub that I watched yeah Werner Herzog does such a phenomenal job he does like, a fantastic I didn't, job he does I didn't realize it was him until afterwards uh when i, I definitely noticed it was about. him he's got a very distinct voice but again it just feels like a, a Werner herzog character even if he wasn't the, the person originally cast yeah i guess that's true like um but i mean for me i guess i just was so lo- like i just didn't yeah. it didn't like wasn't distracting and sure. the way john krasinski was a little bit of distracting yeah when i say a little it's, it's just like millimeters like for sure um <laughs> so you know, yeah, he's kind of been helping out with a, this love story, uh, but he's also, you know, critical of the Nazi regime, which is the first time we really get knowledge that this is Nazi, the Nazi regime, because for that was the one thing that was kind of weird was they were tiptoeing around like, oh, it's the German government. Like they're never they're never saying outright that it's not the Nazis. They're never like we're not seeing like the classic Nazi uh, memorabilia. Mm-hmm. Uh, on these soldiers, they're sort of just acting as these, like, you know, white soldiers. But at this point, yeah, it's very clear, like, okay, now we're getting into, like, this is the Nazi regime. And it's also pretty, uh, you know, pretty remarkable to say that when you're in Japan during the imperial regime, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Castorp, I just looked this up, he is a fictional character, which makes me sad, because I, I, wish, I wish there was more to talk about. Um, just for his historical reference, but no, he, he's a fictional character. Yeah, he like the he kind of seems to already know who Zero is, mm-hmm. um, and he like kind of goes and like you know tells him that um, Hugo uh, Junkers, uh, who is the um, he's the engineer in Germany that's been designing planes, and uh, earlier on, it's you know it's the planes that like. Um, Kiro and Jericho to like visit and like mm-hmm. check out 
it's his planes um and that he at hugo junkers is in trouble because he's been um you know he's fighting against hitler's government um yeah he's like there's a reference to them being called hoodlums and like you know and from a moral standpoint like it's pretty clear that hugo was not uh interested in what the nazi government was doing no i mean i love how he refers to them as hoodlums i mean it's kind of a a, an apt description well very very much so i mean they were more than hoodlums for sure but again it's just cool to see this german character who you know is i don't want to use the word woke but i'm I'm gonna call castor woke if you know what i mean yeah He's the he's the most woke character in this. He's, like, he's a very before. culture guy, and again, he he brings this new perspective to Jiro, and he also is just like reminding the audience of just what's going on in like this era. Yeah, and and, he, and it's also I think because you know Jiro, that the one criticism you can make with this character is that he doesn't seem to have like this giant like this high moral compass in terms of like he's not never really sacrificing anything he's mm-hmm. get, sort of gets to everything kind of comes his way um even though the real life figure was uh, a you know anti-war and was not happy and you know wrote the uh diaries about it and that's how we know um at least this is sort of an embodiment of like you know the fact that castor and Jiro are like aligned in this way kind of shows that Jiro uh isn't happy with the imperial um army yeah and so yeah what they stand for yeah and so moving forward now we now we get the uh, the romance between uh jiro and and naoko and i just love how so much of it is wordless when he's like you know making the paper plane yeah that's such a so much that's such a great um yeah it's just such a great courting scene like the Mm -hmm. like this movie does a great job of like playing with silence like there are se- several sequences where there's like no sound. Like even the beginning of the film, like there's no spoken dialogue for like two or three minutes before mm. you end up like really getting into like what this movie is. And uh, yeah, this kind of the um, the courting scene between Ichiro uh, and uh, Naoko. 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 Yeah, end up playing. Uh, yeah, it just plays out really nicely. Yeah, and and then you know I I like I like how when the airplane uh, bumps into Castor, I just like Castor. I just like him being around in this uh, you know little sequence of scenes. Yeah, he's just a great he's just a great side character. Yeah, he's again. I wish he was there a little bit more. I wish like they he him like uh, Kayo. I just kind of wish he would pop up more. Like, yeah, and the again, fact that he he just has to flee from the Japanese secret police, and then that's like that's it. Yeah, I'm I'm glad that he's a fictional character, which means because if he wasn't, I'm sure we would have read an article about how you know he was killed. So being fictional gives him the luxury of you know maybe maybe they didn't execute him. Yeah, I mean I'm gonna take the happy ending here and say <laughs> that he uh, he fled and then he he ended up in like America or something. But yeah, things things don't go uh, great for Jiro because of that connection though, because he he becomes wanted unfortunately. But before that, he does uh, get engaged with Naoko, so that's great, at least. Yeah, I mean, that is the one thing is, you know, this, that, yeah, they become engaged. There's that a really, you know, nice sequence of them uh, reuniting, because, again, mm-hmm. they hadn't really seen each other since they were uh, younger, when he was, like, going mm-hmm. off to university and she was, uh, you know, a young girl. Um, 
but now that they're both, you know, older, yeah, there is a love connection there that like has obviously persisted throughout time. Yeah. And yeah, we're kind of now nearing the end of the movie already. And yeah, so, so Nalco ends up going to a, a, a mountain sanatorium, sanatorium, not sanitarium, which I got confused by. But yeah. <laughs> that was like an old timey version of like, yeah, medical places for people with terminal illnesses. Yeah, it's essentially a hospice, like an older version of a hospice. Yeah, I was, I was confused at first. I'm like, why is she going to a place for people with mental problems? Is that just where they put everyone? I don't know. No, uh, clear distinction. Yeah, so, I mean, that's like this. So we end up there finding this, like, this tragic element, which is yeah. we find out uh, Nako has uh, tuberculosis and is dying. Which is yeah. again, this and kick it, in the gut. You're like, come on. <laughs> like, I know. And, and the way they portray that too, of her just painting and then, you know, just bleeding profusely. And again, no, no dialogue at all. No sound effect. It's just music. That yeah, visually that it's such a sad sequence. It's kind of horrific. And it's, you know, it's sort of like, oh, cause I was curious, like they don't really explain how she gets it. Like, I think the implication is like, she may have gotten it when they like get trapped in that rain. Oh, that's, like, yeah. That, that's, but, uh, but then, but because Jiro was also there, it's like, Oh, he didn't get it, but she got it. But I also don't know much about tuberculosis. Cause it's like kind of, a, at least in my uh, knowledge of it, it feels like it's a disease that's been mostly eradicated in modern okay. society. I know you can still get it. Like it's obviously not like gone forever, but like, it's a much more survivable condition than it mm. was back in like 19 in the 19 like 40s for sure and yeah yeah um her health deteriorates uh she and jiro enjoy their time together and then yeah jiro has to leave uh for the test flight for his new aircraft for the uh it's not the zero though it's the a5m yeah it's the uh, Mitsubishi A five M, and then as he as he goes off to leave, she like fakes that she's like, I'm just I'm feeling better. I'm just gonna go for a walk. Yeah, and uh, yeah. as as Ko's coming into town, she sees um, Nako Dude, leaving. Dude, the, the sequence where Ko finds out what's wrong, and then you know you just you know she gets the note, she reads the note, and then she just rushes out of the home and just starts crying. Oh my god. Like, so uh, well animated, but, man, just heartbreaking. It's so, yeah, it's, again, such a well, well-directed well sequence. It's such a well-animated sequence. Yeah, you really feel it's the music score is kind of perfect. Um, like, it's just, yeah, it's a very heartbreaking sequence. Mm-hmm. It's a sequence you would never see in Frozen. No, no. I mean, maybe, maybe uh, they'll feel that way when Olaf dies in Frozen 3 or something. <laughs> maybe. Um, um, and then, yeah, you know, his aircraft uh, passes. But, of course, you know, this is ni- 1945. Uh, oh, wait, no. I'm jumping ahead because the right after that sequence, um, Jiro's at his test site, but then he sees a gust of wind, which, you know, kind of suggests that, you know, Nalco has passed. Yeah, and like in the note as well, we kind of jumped ahead of it, but in the note that Kaio reads, you know, it's implied that the reason why um, Naoko leaves is because she doesn't want uh, Jiro's last memory of her to be of one that's like of her at her worst. Yeah. She wants to like really have him remember. And it's not just him, but it's like it's also um, Mrs. Kiro Kawa and also um, 
Kale to all remember her for like being more lively and that you know was she wasn't defined by the tuberculosis. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. yeah, that gust of wind, like because it's this crowning achievement, like the test flight and the fact that it worked. That's a crowning achievement of his uh, career thus far. But the fact that he looks away instead yeah. of looking at the plane, you know, kind of yeah, is such a sad signifier of like her passing. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, we, our final sequence, yeah, it's uh, summer of 1945, and, you know, we know how that ended. Japan Japan lost World War II, and, you know, they were devastated by air raids. And he has uh, one last uh, Caproni dream, and, you know, he tells Caproni that he regrets that his aircraft was used for war. Yeah. And, you know, you, you see a bunch of Zeros fly past, and their pilots salute Jiro. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's not... I mean, man, you just see these zeros and, you know, zeros were, were for, for historical reference, zeros were uh, used for uh, kamikaze strikes. Yeah, they are the kamikaze uh, planes and you definitely... Um, yeah, again, yeah. it's just, man, like, not only just weapons of war, but just, you know, weapons where even the pilots, you know, intentionally kill themselves. I mean, fuck. Yeah, and they they have this, like, it's a really interesting design, like, it's a, you know, it's a plane that you don't, that is so, like, it's historically known, but it's, it's, you definitely can know what it is when you see it, Mm -hmm. Um, and it's a sad, it's it's a sad realization, like, it's it's a beautiful aircraft, but again, its purpose was not for good. No, it wasn't, but uh, Caproni comforts him. And he does say, you know, his dream of building uh, aircraft is, you know, it was still realized. And that's the thing. Caproni is all about, you know, you know, he's the side where he's like, yeah, it's like the beauty was worth it. And I'm not sure. I'm not sure it is. I, I mean, that's the whole thing. It's it's not an easy answer. But yeah, then- it's it's a I mean, I think it's almost what you can make an argument with certain art. Right. Where it's yeah. like, you know, you're trying to make like the best film. And, you know, it might not be how it, you wanted it to be perceived or, like, it becomes a merchandise factory. So all of a sudden, like, what was the pure story and pure, like, cinema now becomes this corporate entity where it's, they're, like, looking to spin it off. They're like, hey, what kind of TV shows can we make yeah. out of this? How, can we put this on T-shirts, you know, plushies? We, we were talking know. about Gundam, which is anti-war, but also is used to sell model kits. <laughs> you know, so, like, yeah, you can make, like, this argument that, like, the theme of this movie, like the theme of it is, you know, can be really, really relevant to like what reality versus, you know, expectations or reality versus dreams are like. Yeah. But then, you know, we, we do end on a positive note where Naoko appears and, you know, she, she tells Jiro to live. And actually when I was watching the documentary, originally she was telling Jiro to come, which was, you know, she was telling him to come die with her. And, uh, Miyazaki like wisely changed that line but you know yeah. it, it was a line that you know was actually in the original script for a long time it, it was a somewhat last minute change yeah I do like that they made the change I think if it was like <laughs> you should kill yourself now yeah it's now very to, depressing time for you to die and it's like oh. yeah time to commit uh suicide it's like uh, no you, you don't need to do that I think I think just being you know living and then you know, hopefully you can make a better aircraft that's for good purposes. Like, I think there's so many implications about, like, living life. Um, yeah. And, yeah, th- this was intended to be Miyazaki's final statement. And, man, um, one of the other things, too, in the documentary, there's there's a sequence in the documentary where he just talks about his struggles of just getting the 
the the way the zeros are depicted just right. Like again, you know, the man is seventy two years old. He's he's not he's not you know the same age he was when he first started doing animation, but he insists that he's the one to draw those scenes because he's like you know he's been trying to get this he's been trying to get these scenes done in his, in his head. He's had this visual for like decades. And, you know, he just can't seem to, to get it right. Or at least, you know, when the documentary is filming him and he's just struggling with that and just, oh, he's, he's such a interesting figure. Yeah. Oh, that, that is. It's a really good documentary. You'd love it. And I mean, I recommend it to, to anyone, just anyone who wants to just watch a movie about the creative process. I, you know what, like you kind of sold me on me uh, watching it now because like after seeing this, like, yeah, really am curious uh, about the behind the scenes. Yeah. Because this is such a flawless film. And the other thing too is this was actually when Ghibli was making two films at the same time. They were making another film called uh, The Tale of Princess Kaguya, which was being directed by... Oh, no. <laughs> Produce? No. Toshio Suzuki. It was produced by uh, Ghibli's... Uh... Oh, Takahata. It was produced... It was directed by Takahata. That's who it was. And that's that's the other thing, too. So um, Jiro's friend, the one who John Krasinski plays, um, Kiro Honjo, that, that character is loosely, not so loosely. He's pretty much Takahata. Takahata was um, Ghibli's kind of older uh, co-worker who, you know, they were always kind of competing with one another. Uh, Miyazaki, Miyazaki was kind of the young upstart who had that kind of innate talent. Whereas yeah. uh, Takahata was, you know, the the kind of older, more practical person. And Takahata is also a, a hugely accomplished director in his own right. He doesn't quite have the reputation of Miyazaki, but I mean, he would directed. You, would you say like the Takahata and uh, Miyazaki like relationship is sort of similar to what the relationship between Jiro and uh, Kiro it's, are? It's, it's because 100%, it's one hundred percent based on the relationship with like him and Hanjo. Because there's clearly this thing of like they really have an admiration for each other, but there's like a line in the uh, in the film where they're like, you know, well, don't become enemies, like, and then um, there's still this mutual respect where they don't try to like get out, you know, try to like push each other down to get ahead, but they recognize each other's uh, strengths. Yeah, and and the the other thing too is in the documentary, um, Miyazaki also. There's, there's a little sequence where he's uh, praising Takahata and then it cuts to the next scene where he's like uh, talking about how much he, he, he gets frustrated with him. Again, it's that type of like old friendship that just still persists. Where he's like, you know, you love someone, but you're also like, ah, oh, fuck that guy. Yeah, no, I completely, it's like a bit of a frenemy thing. Oh no, and I just found this out. Uh, Takahata passed away two years ago. God damn. Oh. Yeah, he got, sad. oh shit, he got lung cancer. Oh, that's really sad. Yeah. So, uh... so his his last film was The Tale of Princess Kaguya, which came out the same year as um, which came out the same year as The Wind Rises. Here. Yeah, he was eighty two, so he did live a uh, a long life. Yeah, for sure. Nice. So he did Grave of the Grave of the Fireflies, which which is famously one of the most depressing movies ever made, <laughs> and also a World War Two movie. Um, that's definitely a movie we'll, we'll cover eventually. Um, it's a uh, yeah, it's not it's not a nice movie. It's a far far less ends on a far lower note than this film. I'll say that. Well, I'm uh, whenever <laughs> that we come across it, I'm uh, 
interested in seeing it. <laughs> yeah, I know it, it. I only watched it just recently, and yeah, it, it was as bleak as as people say. Yeah, I guess, I guess we're kind of into final thoughts here. I think we've kind of covered this as far as all the tidbits from the documentary. I've kind of exhausted those core ones. I mean, there there is some stuff. Oh yeah, so Miyazaki also has a son named Goro, who he um who is also a director and whom he he does not show a ton of affection to at least publicly. Uh, Goro has directed some movies for Studio Ghibli, and um, yeah, M- Miyazaki does not seem like the most um, nice father. He's, yeah, he's, he's I not the see... type of person to give a lot of praise. Yeah, I can see how that becomes. Uh, I mean, I don't know if that's a cultural thing. Which uh, yeah, I, I think it's a little uh, bit cultural, but also just Miyazaki himself just being a very stern person. Yeah, and I mean. Someone... I... Someone who's incapable of of giving a dishonest answer, even if it means telling his son like his film isn't very good. Yeah, it's gotta be. Yeah, that's gotta be a really uh, weird dynamic. I don't even know how to how yeah how to process it. But yeah, I, um, I still haven't seen his son's films. Actually, uh, one of them has only forty three percent on Rotten Tomatoes, so I feel bad. Uh, well, it's, it's on Netflix. Son, his son's apparently directing the next studio. Uh, Ghibli film. That's okay, coming. so that's good. Yeah, and the, the movie that got bad reviews didn't even sound bad. It actually sounds like for from the genre, it's part of it. It's like a fantasy film. It actually sounds kind of cool. Anyways, maybe we'll cover. Well, maybe that maybe it'll be something we cover. I, I don't know. Yeah, it's up to you. Much. You're the curator. Curator. I know. So I get. I guess final thoughts for this movie. I mean, it's perfect. Like, there's no. You didn't even have to listen to this podcast. This movie's perfect. Yeah, this is a perfect film. Um, I uh, I was blown away by it. I don't know. <laughs> this is a, I don't know if anything's ever going to top this. I mean, maybe a, a different uh, maybe a different studio Ghibli film uh, resonates more. But uh, this was a great watch. I actually highly recommend it. And uh, fuck Frozen. Uh, yeah, should have won oh, the Academy Award. That's the other thing too. So the, so the Annies, which are like the alternative. Like they're like the animation, the the Oscars dedicated to just animation. They're also bullshit. They they gave it to Frozen too. I'm like fuck off. Yeah, this is definitely like, way better. It's I, just gonna I, stand more. Yeah, up. but I'll like I'll give the Oscars credit. I get it. Like their voters aren't all animation people. Whatever you know, it's filled with a lot of people who probably just don't you know watch any of the nominees. But if you're called the Annie Awards, like you're supposed to be the ones that are all about animation. Like why the why the fuck are you not giving The Wind Rises best picture and giving it to Frozen? Like, no, you're supposed to be the snobby ones for fuck's sake. Yeah, this is, there's no excuse. I don't, I didn't even know the, uh, was it Annie's? Yeah, the Annie's. I didn't know the Annie's existed until now, but fuck you for, <laughs> for snubbing this film back in yeah. 2013. And, and- did not deserve a snubbing. This is a f- almost flawless film. And uh, I think any like, Ah, it just yeah. Frozen doesn't deserve as much love as it gets. It, it, I think Frozen's fine. I enjoy the film, but the, this it, is my war on. Fr- it's nowhere close. This is my war on uh, Frozen. All right, it begins in this episode. Uh, you better watch out. Better watch out. But anyways, so you know, our podcast doesn't just cover Ghibli movies. We've got another episode coming up, and for next week. The series that we're going to go into is Carol and Tuesday, which is from the creator of Cowboy Bebop. Um, We're not quite covering Cowboy Bebop. I still want us to be perfectly ready for that, but uh, we are covering his latest series. So we're going to cover episodes one, two, and three. I'm I'm making it super easy. 
and also because I, I want to ensure that Malcolm likes it. Uh, Carolyn Tuesday is awesome. So yeah, you can join us, follow us along, uh, follow us on Twitter on Is This Anime Pod. Uh, same with our uh, Instagram and stuff. And yeah, and hey, if you if you think we um we didn't pick the right Ghibli movie, I am. Um, I mean, I'm sorry. It's a hard challenge. It's a hard hey, challenge. Might... They're all really good. There's like at least five that could have been a perfect one for this episode. Hey, we may uh, go back into the well someday. And, we're, uh... we're definitely, it will not be our last Ghibli movie. Um, there's definitely, I mean, I really wanted to cover Princess Mononoke, but I just felt, I wanted to pick a movie that had almost zero conflict. I think that was really kind of my goal. And Princess Mononoke is probably one of his, it's the closest thing to a movie he's done to an action film. Not that it's an action film, but it's like a fantasy epic. Uh, oh. I really wanted to pick this conflict-free movie. Oh, you know what I mean. You know what I mean by conflict-free. There's, in that sense. Yeah. Anyways, yeah. Uh, thanks for listening, everyone. And yeah, please, please watch this movie, even if you've already seen it. Uh, watch it again. Yeah. Anyways, uh, take care and uh, have a great day.